the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our third hour of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight to welcome to the show another new guest today, Bacha Ungar Sargon. She is the author of a brand spanking new book just out, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Bacha, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I first, I, I, I've been reading you for a while, and then I hadn't read you for a while for no reason except you you get the flood of things and you know how it is. <laughs> and uh, then I, I, I came upon Barry Weiss promoting uh, your book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And I want to get into that. But first, for the audience, I do this with every first-time guest. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, any autobiography you like, how you grew up and came to be doing what you're doing. Oh, wow. That's such a great question. Um, <laughs> I hope you know I the think... answer. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, I have to think about that. Yeah. Oh, who am I? Who am I from? What did make me into myself? Philosophy <laughs> 101, yes. Know thyself, yeah. right. What does it mean to be a person? Yeah. What does it mean anyway to exist? <laughs> um, uh, no, <laughs> I'm really like, where do I start? No, I think the most important thing to know about me is that um, I got a PhD from Berkeley in literature, and I like to say I have a PhD in nonsense because that's essentially what it is. It's mm. like I came to, to journalism from academia and, um, you know, I thought I was escaping, you know, <laughs> I was escaping a certain kind of um, degree and nonsense, but um, it followed me like all of the woke language and the ideas that are really fermenting in the academy followed me into journalism, you know, a yeah. decade later. Yeah. <laughs> and I... That's kind of what the book is about. <laughs> well, I know the feeling. I mean, I've been talking about this for some time. This is especially uh, apropos the critical race theory issue, isn't it? Um, people like to use this phrase lab leak, and I, I've been saying I think the greatest lab leak has been from the ivory towers suffusing, you know, too many institutions, you know, and human brains uh, that, you know, what used to infect and people used to say, you know, well, that's just college stuff. They'll get over it. They'll get into the real world. Well, those people did graduate, get into the real world. They got jobs at Twitter and Facebook and they started censoring us. Um, oh that's, gosh, that's but, but that lab leak has infected, <laughs> right? Harvard sociology departments, Berkeley literature departments, they are now more dominant, or at least those theories are more dominant in places none of us ever thought were permeable, but including professional athletics in the upper echelons of the U.S. military, never mind all of elementary and secondary education, right? I mean, this, this, it's true. These views did start in colleges, but they didn't stay there, right? That's very, very true, and I think it really ties into the Virginia race yeah. that was won yesterday by Mr. Youngkin, to much to many people's surprise. Um, he, you know, um, he kind of forced Terry McAuliffe into a position where he McAuliffe had, you know, squandered a 10-point lead from the beginning of the race, and he did that 
largely <laughs> through critical race theory, yeah. right? Um, and it's so funny because I wrote another piece for Barry Weiss's Substack today, actually arguing that, you know, we, we think of critical race theory as being about race. But to me, it's not actually about race. It's about class. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because, you know, what is critical race theory? It's this like super specialized legal theory it's a criticism of the Civil Rights Act, right? Basically, it showed up in academic legal departments after the Civil Rights Act to say, you know, here are the ways in which American society is still perpetuating racism, right? right. Now, of course, there are ways in which there is still racism. There are state-sponsored areas where racism still exists that we do still need to pay attention to. You know, police brutality is one of them. You know, while it's not true that police officers shoot black men to kill more than they shoot white men, they do disproportionately insult black people. They disproportionately put hands on them. They disproportionately put them in handcuffs. That's a moral emergency. We, we have to pay attention to that. But instead of paying attention to that, the media has to only focus on the thing that's not true, right? The quote-unquote genocide, right, of black men. So I'm getting a little off topic. No, you're not. You're not. I want to ask you about that point because okay, okay. Yes, this is really right. interesting. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me after the death of George Floyd, immediately mm-hmm. after the death of George Floyd, almost universally everyone in America understood the point you were making, the predicate you were making, and wanted to do mm-hmm. something about it. Yes, and totally then true. what happened was a Marxist yeah. movement said all of America is like this. Right. And they ruined right. it. So, they so, ruined okay. it. Okay, so the, the point I make in the book is actually, I wouldn't call it Marxist because I'm a bit of a Marxist in that I think that this the, the focus on race is a way of hiding class issues in America. It's a way of hiding income inequality. Okay. We'll focus on racial inequality and talk about that all the time, even though racism is always getting less and less in America. We're always approaching that equality that we were founding on, right? Mm -hmm. Founded on. We won't talk about, you know, we'll talk about that. We'll be in a moral panic about race um, as a way of hiding the fact that we have a huge class divide, that the economy right now is working extremely well for people who are highly educated, extremely well for people in the knowledge industry, and working very, very poorly for people who are in the middle class, lower middle class, working class, for people who are all downwardly mobile, as evidenced by things like deaths of despair. Right. That's, that's sort of what I argue in the book, is that liberals, affluent liberals, are using race in order to hide the fact that they have benefited from rising inequality in America, which I consider to be a real problem because I'm still a lefty. Well, you can, you can consider it a, be, a, bit, a real problem and being conservative, too. I, 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 nothing you're telling me is news to me, and I, and, I, um, and I learned all of this from people with names like Jack Kemp. They weren't – so I, you don't have to be a lefty to, to agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> uh, by the way, Bacha Unger Sargon is our guest. Her book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Let, let's stick with that, that for a moment if we can. Um, that race issue that seems to be the grand distraction, if you will, um, because one of the things you focus on in your book and in your column about the Virginia race is that everything that was said about America for the past, I don't know, two, three years with regard to race was doubled down on by the Democratic Party in Virginia. And there is this element of Americans that know they're not racist and don't like being told they're racist. And it's just odd to me that a party that realized 
calling half of America deplorable wasn't a good idea, now thinks it's a good idea to call them white supremacists. <laughs> Am I wrong? No. <laughs> so crazy. So, so Clinton, Hillary Clinton actually said in the, in the, in the basket of deplorables comment, what she said was, she said, half of the nation is in the basket of deplorables. They're like the racist, the misogynist, mm-hmm. the transphobe. And then she said something that is true, that the other half are people who just feel like America has forgotten about them. They're downwardly mobile. Their, their children, they know their children are going to be poorer than they are. They just feel that they've been forgotten and we have to care about them. And, and, you know, it's so funny. So she was like, okay, 25% of the nation is, is deplorable and fall, and 25% we've really actually abandoned, and we should pay attention to them, and we should get them on our side, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in the wake of that, you, you could ima- like you can imagine a world in which the Democrats were like, huh, that was pretty much a big mistake to call 25% of our fellow Americans racist. Like, you know, why don't we focus on the other half of that comment that we have abandoned the working class? Mm-hmm. Like, we really have abandoned them. Like, who did, you know, who, who, who normalized trade relations with China? Like, the biggest disaster in American economic history, essentially, as far as I'm concerned, in modern American history. Like, essentially decimated, you know, industrial, uh, industrial manufacturing in America, right? Stole 5 million American jobs working class jobs that were, you know, upward mobility for the working class and gave them to like China's poor so that now China has the biggest (laughs) middle class in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Who did that? Bill Clinton did that. Right. The Democrats did that. Right. Mm -hmm. And instead of being like, you know what, why don't we take some responsibility for what we did and for the fact that, you know, um, and I'm talking specifically about the chattering class, the people who have won. Right. The Mm -hmm. people are now rich. Right. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, like, I'm going to approach my success. It, with some humility towards the people who have lost on every measure, they instead decided to call them racist because it's so much easier, right? And I think what we saw in the in the election yesterday is like that's not going to work, you know, like that's not going to cut it. And the funny thing about critical race theory is the reason I say it's about class is like you've probably noticed this, but like the liberal pundits, and again, I'm on the left, I say this like with disgust for my own side, but they sort of have you noticed that they're, they 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 can't make up their mind. Like first they'll say. Yes, critical race theory. Yes, there's critical race theory, but it's good. It's important. You know, mm-hmm. it's about teaching racism in schools. Then they'll say, no, there, there is critical race theory, but it's a legal theory. They're not doing it. Yeah, in it's school. only in the law and schools, the, right? It's only in law schools. And then the latest thing that I saw yesterday was they're like, critical race theory doesn't even exist, right? right? That's right. the latest thing. It doesn't even exist, right. right? It's like such gaslighting. They'll say, these parents, you know, you saw these reporters, they would go and stop um, uh, Virginia voters and they would say to them, like, you know, why are you voting for, for Glenn Youngkin? And they'll be like, because of critical race theory, right? And then they'll be like, do you know what critical race theory is? And they'll be like, well, I know that there's something I don't like, but I don't know exactly what it is. And they'll be like, gotcha, you see? They're such idiots. They're voting on something. They don't even understand it. It's so disgusting stuff. Like, it's such gaslighting. And it's gaslighting on the grounds of, like, we are the educated who understand what legal theory is. Yeah. We are the ones who decide whether it exists. And you, because you don't have a graduate degree or a law degree, you have no right to say whether your children are learning something you like or you don't like. And they say this stuff to black parents, yep. to Latino parents, just like they say it to white parents. It's not about race. It's about class. It's about the sneering and the smearing that the chattering class is a highly educated, affluent chattering class indulges in when it comes to working class, average, 
middle-class Americans, and it's just so unforgivable, and it loses them elections. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's right. Can I – what's your schedule like, Bacha? I, I, can I do a quick break and come back with you on the, for one more segment, or do you have to sure, run? Sure, sure, I would love sure. to. No, no, uh, let me no, take a no, quick no. Commercial. I'm so honored. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me take an obscene commercial break that I hope doesn't offend, <laughs> and um, we will come right back because I want to pick up on that issue, dividing Americans by race, dividing them – uh, or not by class. We are talking with Bacha Unger Sargon. She spells her last name U N G A R hyphen S A R G O N. Her book, Bad News How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Our guest is Bacha Ungar Sargon. Her book, just out, Bad News How Woke Media is Undermining democracy. Bacha, I want to talk to you about the class uh, issue as more important than the race one in just a moment. But before I do, in the uh, I think it's in the intro of your book, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken, you have a part in there about Americans maybe not appreciating how elite the journalist class has itself become, how out of touch Mm -hmm. they have uh, perhaps become and looking through a, a lens that most Americans don't don't look through do i have am i remembering this right and did you want to say something about that because i think it's important people understand that the journalists of today come to their profession a lot differently than they used to yeah so if any of your listeners want to understand why they suddenly feel like when they turn on their tv or when they read you know a publication mainstream publication why they suddenly feel like insulted, like that the person has contempt for them, they're not wrong. So um, journalism used to be a working class trade. It was like being an electrician. You would pick the job up, you pick it up on the job. Like, you can't really teach someone how to be a journalist, Seth. Like, you can't teach someone how to be a good listener. You can't teach someone how to question their own biases. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's stuff you learn through doing it. That's what Americans knew for hundreds of years. American journalism started really as a populist revolution. It started in the 19th century by guys who looked around and they were like, all the newspapers are for the elites, but there are hundreds and thousands of poor and working class people and they all know how to read. Mm -hmm. They're all out here reading romances and and reading, you know, their Bibles and reading, you know, gallows adventures and so forth, but they don't have a newspaper. And so they created the penny press. They created newspapers that cost just a penny. And what they figured out was, that in, you give somebody dignity, you give a poor person dignity when you say to them, I know you only have two pennies, but I have something that's worth one of those, even if it means you're not going to eat lunch. It's going to be so interesting to you and so relevant to your life that it's going to be worth that penny. And that's what they did. They made these newspapers for the poor and the working class, about them, by them. They would go to the courts and they would cover the crime. They would gossip about the working class. They made them feel like they were worthy of being gossiped about. And they waged crusades on their behalf. They always took up their causes. And so it was like really for them. There used to be a thing called the Mean Streets Reporter, you know, the Mike Royko's of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were totally, right, right. Totally. And so they, and because they were of the class they were reporting on, they didn't want to like, they didn't want to like, you know, they didn't want to be above them being like, you should care about these people. They're beneath you. They're poor. They need you to. They were of them. They were like, you should care about us. You know, you should care about yourself. You know what I mean? Yep. They were reporting from within the community, okay? That, that, that was like, 
that was the whole 19th century, the whole, you know, and the beginning of the 20th century. You know, in 1937, a survey of the elite journalists who worked at Washington, so who were at the top of their game, mm-hmm. less than half of them had a college degree right, set. Right. A whole bunch of them had not even gone to high school. Right. You know, they picked up the job on the job. They learned the skills on the job. Fast forward to today, 2015, do you want to guess what percentage of American journalists have a college degree? Uh, right now, what percentage of Americans have a college degree? My best guess is somewhere around 40%. Okay, so 36% of Americans have a college okay. degree. Okay, okay. When it comes to journalists... Oh, I'm sure it's 95, yeah. 92%, yeah. yes, okay. 92% have a college degree. That's like, so already... Already, they are completely different from two-thirds of Americans. They cannot understand their lives. They cannot understand where they get value. They cannot understand what their jobs are like or what gives them meaning. Like, it's like, that's the divide. It's like, once you go to college, you start seeing things through the lens of, you know, the knowledge industry, through the lens of people who have been educated in a certain way and taught to educate others in a certain way. And I know this because I have a PhD. So I, and, and <laughs> in order to, so you, could, you might say like, okay, not everybody goes for the humanities, yeah. but every person who graduates from college has to take that intro composition class, right? Yep. And that's taught by literature PhDs. Yep. So everyone gets funneled through the critical race theory, right? Because to get that that literature PhD, you have to study, you know, critical theory. You have to take that class. Mm-hmm. So everyone, so that's, that's this huge divide now. And so imagine like all of the news, all of the news is being produced by people who have a college degree. And because the newspaper industry is so constricted now, right? The yep. whole local media, the whole local news media has like disappeared in the face of the internet. Yep. So, so the newspapers can afford to be even more selective, which means that the New York Times, the Washington Journal, the Washington Post, and NPR, they take all of their interns from the top 1% of universities, okay? So it's like now not even enough to just have that college degree from the University of Michigan. Right. It's like you have to go to an Ivy. Right. That's who journalists are. That's why you feel their contempt, because they have contempt for you. Like, And it comes through. It's like the people charged with telling the great American story, they have no idea what American lives are like. They live, 75% of journalists live on the coast. They live in the most expensive American cities. And, and, and also bear in mind that the starting salary of a journalist is very low. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, the, the, the ending salary, once you, you make it, if you're in your 40s or 50s, you're going to be making over $100,000 a year. But the starting salary is often $35,000 a year. And all the jobs are like in New York and D.C. and San Francisco. You have to ask yourself, who can afford yeah. to live in New York City on $35,000 a year? Only the child of a rich person, yep. right? So how, how do you become a journalist today? To become a journalist in 1937, what you would do is you would present yourself to a newspaper and say, teach me how to write, right? Like that was like how you did it. Today, how do you do it? You go to an elite university. You take unpaid internships in very expensive cities and your parents pay for it, you know? And then you get a job at a digital media company, and then you get hot, you know, poached by you know Vox, and then from Vox you get poached by the New York Times. You know, it used to be you would work at like a local newspaper, and your boss would be an editor who hadn't been to college, and his boss would be a Republican, yeah. right? Like so everything was sort of like this balance, right? Well, now and now it's like totally different. Now, now we know the ideology or vector of the lab leak. It came from the Columbia School of Journalism. <laughs> Bacha Unger Sargon. Uh, this was an abbreviation, uh, but I hope a down payment. I'd love to have you on for an hour sometime very soon. Will you come back? 
Oh, my gosh. Anytime. It's such an honor to be able to talk to your listeners. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, it's an honor to have said. you. Let me give you one more plug. Bad, the book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. The author, our guest, Batya Unger Sargon, U-N-G-A-R dash S-A-R-G-O-N. Read her. You'll be smarter. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The Arizona Supreme Court weighed in on uh, the legislature and governor's uh, orders that schools cannot mandate masks. And we will have uh, analysis on that Supreme Court decision from the great Brett Johnson in just a few moments. But first, Rob is in surprise. Hello, Rob. Oh, hi. Hi, Seth. Uh, Happy Wednesday. Happy uh, Wednesday. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased that Virginia turned out the way it did. Um, however, and I, this is sort of a cautionary tale, while everybody in the media and everybody who's conservative is happy about uh, what happened in Virginia, and I'm going to leave New Jersey out of it because that's got some separate issues, um, there's still the... Uh, I, I think it was on um, Twitter, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who was talking about the 2,100 pages of the reconciliation budget, which I think is latest number is $1.75 trillion. Yeah, it was pushing up to 1.8. Yeah, we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and she's talking about it being a full government takeover of every major of the American economy. And so... Despite losing yesterday, the Democrats are going full steam ahead into socialism, you know, with no apology. And one of the things in this bill, uh, well, one of the several things going on in the bill is, you know, they want to fight climate change. Okay, well, there's uh, $555 billion for climate and clean energy investment. And tree equity. Um, Don't forget the tree equity. Well, course and uh, tax credits if they're going to buy electrical vehicles and uh and then there's uh child care universal pre-k if they go to if they go to the right school and if the products are made by union shops yep Mm -hmm. well yeah exactly 400 billion for child care and preschool through programs funded for six years uh they want to expand medicare but apparently uh, they're not going to expand dental and vision benefits uh, they want to extend the child tax credit uh, under their uh, COVID relief plan and extend it through 2025. Um, and they want to uh, also give $150 billion to build or improve more than a million new affordable housing units. Right. Um, isn't, that, isn't that what kind of happened in the mid to late 60s when in, in Chicago especially, which I remember because I was living north of there, um, they build a lot of, you know, affordable government subsidized housing, yep. and they all ended up getting trashed, right? <coughs> yep. And so they, they, uh, oh, and they make in, they call it investments, you know, ma- maternal health, community violence initiatives, uh, native communities supply chain. None, none of which, by the way, none of which, or anything you didn't mention, deals with the problem of the border 
or deals with the problem yep. of drug use and drug death. None of none of it deals well, with anything that non-Marxists don't care about. Well, that's true. Although they did uh, propose an additional hundred billion to reform, quote unquote, the nation's immigration system, which, if included, would raise the price tag from one point seven five trillion to one point eight five trillion. And so there is uh, some immigration quote-unquote reform uh but we don't know how how that's going to end up you know and then there's also this uh, free community college cutting prescription drugs paid family medical leave and all that crap so while we're happy that virginia got a republican governor lieutenant governor and attorney general um there's still meanwhile and state house and state house right and the state house is right I think what are they? Are they the state that gained five Republicans in the state house? Not it sure. Was, uh, yeah. Anyway, I know they flipped um, it. That was, yeah, and and I think that's wonderful. But meanwhile, Washington is still doing its thing. Now, one of the things that really bugs me more than anything else is the folks that were imprisoned on January sixth, mm-hmm. um, and. It's partly because, you know, I look at them as prisoners of war, which I think there's an apt analogy to that because, you know, you talked earlier about the ACLU, and we know uh, American Civil Liberties Union doesn't seem to care about certain American civil liberties, obviously, since they're not participating and since they're also working towards uh, illegals being reunited with family. But I think that's something... Uh, that people need to pay more attention to. And again, Marjorie Taylor Greene and I think, uh, well, several other Congress people have tried to get in uh, to see these people, and they've been unsuccessful. Yeah, I- let me, let me, Rob, I have to hit the break here, but let me, uh, let me just say this uh, over your general comments about Virginia and optimism. It's a victory if we can keep it, if we learn the right lessons from it and push forward. Oh, there's a good ocean song for a good Navy man. Our Robert Jackson visiting scholar in constitutional studies, Brett Johnson from the law firm of Snell and Wilmer, joins us every week to go over these things. Brett, how are you, sir? Good, good. Thanks, Seth, for having me. Always. I'm going to change your title, visiting scholar in constitutional contentions instead of constitutional nice. studies. William Buckley titled Every Speech Before Every Group the Same Thing, Reflections on Current Contentions, which just allowed him to do anything he wanted. So you are doing (laughs) constitutional contentions here, not for that reason, but because I think that's what we're dealing with. You have been on over the last couple weeks, Brett, talking to us about the impending Supreme Court decision on blocking school mask bans. The official name of this case is Arizona School Boards Association v. State of Arizona. And yesterday, the Supreme Court weighed in on an opinion. I can read the whole opinion. While the court does not adopt the trial court's reasoning in its entirety, it is ordered unanimously affirming the trial court's judgment. Can you tell us what happened? You you brought up the right word when you introduced me on the word yeah. because uh, that definitely was what happened yesterday at the, at the Supreme Court, Arizona Supreme Court. Um, it was what we call a hot bench, um, especially for the Attorney General's office. 
in that the Supreme Court justices kind of basically came out swinging. Um, and and, and the, the rationale that they had, and just as a way of background for everybody, um, the mask mandate, uh, prohibition, some other issues dealing with universities, also with vaccine mandates, there were a whole host of issues, and they got put into um, as part of what's called a reconciliation bill with, with the budget. Okay, And at the end of the session, um, to get the budget across the table, to placate different legislators for different reasons, um, the, those bills were passed, including the mask mandate. And what the plaintiffs, uh, right, the Arizona School Board Association, um, came down and, and argued was that you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to put that into the budget. Um, Judge Cooper, originally in the trial court, agreed with that um, and said that they were not allowed to do it. The Supreme Court, especially what you just read, Seth, said we don't necessarily agree with Judge Cooper's opinion, but we agree that the legislature did not do it properly. And they were very, very um, aggressive in, in their questioning yesterday. So what well, one thing I want to make clear is the Arizona Supreme Court did not pass judgment on mass mandates, vaccine mandates, or anything else. What they passed judgment on was how the legislature procedurally did those laws. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's maybe a distinction without not a difference, but for the Supreme Court it was. So that's that's where we are today. Well, when you look at the trial court, was it Judge Cooper? Is that who you mentioned? Judge Cooper. When yeah. you look at the trial court's analysis of what took place, if you assumed the legislature passed this as a standalone piece of legislation, would you read in her tea leaves or in her dicta or in her opinion that that would have passed muster or should have? It, 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 yes. Um, I, I do. So basically, if they, if they stood on their own in their entirety, um, they would have passed muster. However, one thing that the Supreme Court did not acknowledge yesterday it was actually very disappointing. So our legislature, which is the representatives of all of uh, all of the counties in Arizona, um, have one standard that's very strict. You can't do what's called log rolling. Mm-hmm. You can't add a whole bunch of things into a budget. However, that same rule does not apply to out-of-state initiatives. Right. And the out-of-state initiatives, you're basically, the Supreme Court has has basically blessed that process where you can put a ton of things into an initiative, you walk out of Safeway and have to sign it, and you're approving it to get on the ballot, and it really has, doesn't make much sense. So there is basically a double standard between the legislature that is creating laws and the out-of-state interests that are trying the same thing through the initiative process. I actually think I'm a named plaintiff in a case where you are the lead attorney on that very issue, if I'm not mistaken. You are. Okay. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, you and I are in Supreme Court history. Uh, you may not want to be tethered to me, but you've been in the Supreme Court a ton. Brett. Honored. <laughs> I'm honored to know you and, and have you, too, as my attorney. Brett Johnson of Snell & Wilmer. Let me ask you this, Brett. Do you think there will be um, uh, an effort to cure this? Will there be a legislative or executive effort? There can't really be a judicial one. That's that. That's actually an important point. You can't have yeah. the Supreme Court fix what an attorney doesn't argue, right? That That's right. Okay. They just kick it back to the legislature right. and say, but the, it's two problems here. Number one, the Supreme Court said what you read, we will come out with an opinion later right. explaining our process. Well, so the legislature doesn't know the rules of the game. It's like getting on a soccer pitch and not knowing the rules of the game. Can I, can I hit the goalie or can't I? Mm-hmm. So the, we have to kind of wait for what happens with the order. But the legislature could go into special session 
and basically through um, that process do exactly whatever the court says about doing these um, um, these different uh, processes through separate bills. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The problem with that, though, and I'm taking off my lawyer hat and putting on a political one, yep. is that we've had significant changes in the legislature over the last even just few weeks. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they have the the, um, the votes and the will to do that special session um, is, is up to debate. Brett, um, when 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 we look at the courts and the legislature in Arizona, and we look at um, at the kinds of legislation that the Republicans have passed in the legislature, are the courts here? Are they pretty much nonpartisan? Or do you are you able or do most people break down our our appellate and Supreme Courts kind of the same way we would the Supreme Court? We kind of know which way certain people incline. Is it a little bit less partisan, if you will, in our in our state court system or is it about the same? Uh, I I think so. And obviously you and I know a lot of them. So it's tough to say that they're. uh, we, We know some of their personal politics, but their judicial philosophies. Are different than their politics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so you'll have you'll have somebody who is definitely conservative in their personal beliefs, but um, basically what, uh, read it straight on the Constitution. Say, I might not agree with this, but the Constitution says you have to do this, and and, and you didn't do so, regardless of what the issue is. And, and and a good point, you know, for the school board association, their lawyer, and it brought up a, a, a good point. If if uh, this were allowed in the budget process, you could take away Second Amendment rights. It was very smart of her um, to make that argument to the court. It's like you could just roll anything into a budget, and you might not like this legislature, but you really might not like the next legislature. Yeah. So it was it was a powerful argument. Well, Brett, uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. So if if we're concluding on what the Supreme Court said in Arizona, the Arizona Supreme Court said yesterday about this um, this attempt to stop the mandating of masks in schools, would it be fair to say, um, as was uh, kind of reversed on the on the gates of hell, that um, that don't abandon all hope ye who enter here? <laughs> No, there is hope. You know, there, there is hope. There, there is there there is hope through the legislature. There's hope through the governor's office. And quite honestly, uh, I'm a big I'm a federalist guy. I, I'm a big fan of local government. Local government can step up and, and do the right thing too. Fantastic. Maybe we can talk about some of those contours on our next visit next week. Absolutely. Brett Johnson of Snell and Wilmer, also known as the Robert Jackson Visiting Scholar on Constitutional Contentions. Brett, thank you, sir. Have a blessed rest of your day. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and thanks for spending some of this uh, important and pregnant day with us. Really appreciate it. We'll have more to say uh, tomorrow. We'll have more to say for a long time. I think the point Rob was making is uh, the most crucial in all our celebrating and all our jumping, let's not make sure while we're in the air that the rugs are being pulled from under us. In other words, it's a victory if we can keep it, if we can learn from it, and if we can keep it. The notion that we won on dog-whistled fake culture wars is a, is a, is a notion, perhaps, perhaps some kind of therapeutic the left is trying to convince themselves of 
so that they can sleep well tonight. But as I am happy to remind any of them or debate any of them, none of this is a dog whistle. We speak loudly and clearly. It is you who have turned a deaf ear to the concerns of most Americans and on the things we care about most. Our children, our family, our community, our safety, our physical and mental health, and yes, indeed, too, our ability not to be convinced that nonsense is right and chaos has to be a way of life. We didn't start the culture war. You did. We just joined it. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Class dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.